Welcome to the Ordinary Extraordinary Cemetery, where every death had a life and every life had a story. My name is Jenny Johnson. Hello, and I'm Diane Hartshorn. Before we jump into today's episode, um, if anybody listened last week, I shouldn't say if anybody, we know people listened last week. We could see when you guys listen. Um, We talked about Punxsutawney Phil and Groundhog Day. Uh, but when we, at the time we had recorded the episode, it was the Tuesday before. So we didn't know what this year's prediction was, but he, he did see his shadow. So six more weeks of winter. Oh, but <laughs> you need the snow. I'm not going to complain. We desperately know. need the snow here. But I have enjoyed this last week of a break in between the snows and the super frigid. We, Colorado gets snow every year. Like that's part of our winter, but we don't usually get like, the frigid temperatures day after day after day after day. Yeah. But this year we've had a lot of single digit days in a row and dreary days too. Like cloudy, cold, yeah, almost like Nebraska winters. No offense, Nebraska. I love you, but I don't love your winters. <laughs> yeah, because this weekend, was it this weekend that was just absolutely so beautiful? It was yes. 60s. It was just... Yes, because we were out of town, but it was just like phenomenal. I just, every, any opportunity just to sit outside, it was just. We finally got the Christmas decorations taken down outside. <laughs> Usually we're really good about getting them down, you know, right after Epiphany and everything. But this year between super busy schedules for both mm-hmm. my husband, myself and the kids and the really snowy weather that we had all of January, it made it really hard to get out there and get stuff down. But Saturday my husband and I finally got out there and we got everything out of the trees. He took the lights off the house. So Christmas inside and outside is officially put away. It just took longer than usual. So I was, <laughs> I think you've had worse weather than we've had. We, like I said, this snow. year has been colder and snowier than most winters. So I was in fully enjoying the Blake, a little disappointed when Punxsutawney Phil said six more weeks of winter, but also, we live in Colorado. We could have winter until June, too. So oh, that's, that's not unusual. That <laughs> is true. That is true. So this week, moving on from the weather. <laughs> this week begins our Month of Love series. And we are so excited to be able to share the first of three episodes revolving around love. Thanks to so many of you for your submissions. Next week is Valentine's Week. So we will save our romantic love stories for next Thursday. This week, we're going to share some stories of love involving humans and their four-legged friends of the horse and mule variety. This topic reminded us of a fictional story related to one of L.M. Montgomery's and a Green Gable books. And so we wanted to use it to kick off our real-life stories. This comes from the fourth book in the series, Anne's House of Dreams. Newly married Anne is having a chat with some of her neighbors when Captain Jim relates the story of Amanda and his dog. Marshall's brother Alexander had a dog he set great store by, and when it died, the man actually wanted to have it buried in the graveyard along with other Christians, he said. Of course, he wasn't allowed to, so he buried it just outside the graveyard fence and never darkened the church door again. But Sundays, he drove his family to church and sat by that dog's grave and read his Bible all the time service was going on. They say when he was dying, he asked his wife to bury him beside the dog. 
She was a meek little soul, but she fired up at that. She said she wasn't going to be buried beside no dog. And if he'd rather have his last resting place beside the dog than beside her, just to say so. Alexander Elliot was a stubborn mule, but he was fond of his wife. So he gave in and said, well, darn it, bury me where you please. But when Gabriel's trump blows, I expect my dog to rise with the rest of us, for he had as much soul as any darned Elliot or Crawford or McAllister that ever strutted. Them was his parting words. My mother was telling me a story when she had little rabbits and stuff and a dog that died. Um, my grandpa buried him outside of the cemetery fence up outside of Salida. Um, anyway. <laughs> Oh, I love that. I just love that. Well, okay. Confession, I love all the Anne of Green Gables books. But when I started putting this episode together, I remembered that part. I had to go back and find it. I was like, I know it's in that book. So I went back and found it so we could share it because that cracks me up. It's true. An animal's soul is sometimes so much better than a human's. So definitely pure. Pure, yes. Most definitely purer than most human souls. Yes, I agree. That was much better (laughs) phrasing. Those of us who are animal lovers can relate to Alexander. It's pure heartbreak when a beloved animal crosses that rainbow bridge. One of today's stories comes from Holly N., who shared a story she read on Atlas Obscura about a man and his love for his horses and mules. Between 1930 and 1946, a tobacco farmer laid his beloved horses and mules to rest in a small patch of pine forest. There are 10 graves marked with simple stone markers with the names of the horses and mules and a pleasant memory or physical description about each one. For example, Maud, brown mule, very gentle, 1906 to 1939, oh my goodness, or Prince Trotting Horse, chestnut sorrel, white face, 1930 to 1945. Fabius H. Page, F.H., to his friends, was a farmer who lived on the same piece of land in North Carolina from his birth in 1889 until his death in 1978. He lived there first with his parents and then with his wife, Annie Lee Walton, and their five children. Page was known for his love for animals, especially his mules, and for not owning a tractor. He was said to have stipulated in his will that a small graveyard on the property where he buried his beloved mules and horses would never be sold or traded. He also never sold any of his mules or horses. They lived out their lives pleasantly with the Page family. That almost makes me want to cry. Um, (laughs) Mules have a long and rich history in human civilization and were considered to be essential for farm work before the advent of tractors. Their hybrid nature, which results from breeding a female horse with a male donkey, makes them strong, long-lived, and hardworking. Mules were widely used in the United States in the 19th century and were considered to be valuable assets for farmers. The phrase, 40 acres and a mule, represents an early but unfulfilled promise to compensate formerly enslaved people after the American Civil War and represents land and essential farm equipment that would have been allowed them to start a new life as farmers. The mule played an important role in North Carolina's history, especially in tobacco farming. 
Creedmoor, North Carolina was once known as Mule Town and was the largest mule trading center in the world. However, with the widespread adoption of farm machinery, demand for mules declined, and in 1949, Benson, North Carolina launched with the Mule Days Festival to celebrate the important role that mules have played in the state's history. This festival still takes place each September and is a celebration of the mules' enduring legacy in North Carolina. Mules are often considered to be better suited for heavy farm work than horses, as they are stronger, have better stamina, and are less prone to injury. They are also known for their intelligence and their ability to learn quickly, which makes them easier to train than horses. In addition to their use in agriculture, mules have been used for transportation and as pack animals, and were often used by the military for supply and logistic purposes. They are also popular as riding animals, as they are known for their smooth and comfortable gait. Mules are highly valued for their versatility and their ability to adapt to a wide range of conditions and environments. Including, which I didn't include it in the script, including mining. Exactly. Um, Yeah, here in Colorado, at least, and I'm pretty sure up in Alaska, mules were often used in and out of the mines because they were smart and strong. So they used them a lot here, too. Yeah, and I've heard that they are more sure-footed than horses, so Mm -hmm. they probably were used a lot more than what we think they were used. Yeah, I think so, too. Despite their many positive traits, mules are often underappreciated and are sometimes seen as less desirable than horses or donkeys. However, their reputation is slowly changing, and many people are starting to appreciate the mule for the remarkable animal that it is. It's really not surprising that F.H. Page created a burial place for his beloved horses and mules as they are central to life and lore in many of the U.S.'s southern states. American writer and poet William Faulkner kept a painting of a mule in his study for a good reason. Mules symbolize the kind of character and perseverance that farm life requires. He wrote extensively about mules and their importance in the rural South. Mules were a common sight in the agricultural areas of the South and played a significant role in the lives of farmers in their communities. Faulkner often used mules as symbols in his writing to represent the stubbornness and strength of the rural South. In his novel, As I Lay Dying, mules are described as stubborn and proud and serve as a metaphor for the resilience and determination of the rural people of the South. Mules are also central to the story in The Hamlet, where they are used to represent the declining fortunes of the rural self as the world around it changes. In addition to this symbolic role in his writing, Faulkner also wrote about mules as working animals and as a part of the landscape and culture of the rural self. In his essays and interviews, he spoke about his own experiences with mules and their importance and described them as being tough and strong and full of character. Overall, Mules played a significant role in William Faulkner's writing, and their presence in his work reflects this appreciation for the rural self and the people and animals that lived there. Is it any wonder that Thaddeus Page created the cemetery for his beloved mules? It was because of these animals that Page led a successful life as a farmer and was able to provide for his family, and he truly felt each one should be remembered after its death. The little burial ground is by all accounts a bit tricky to find, but well worth the visit if you are in the area. As I'm sure Mr. Page did, you too can pay your respects to Kate, still gray mule, very intelligent, 1902 to 1930, 
and Lulu Bay Mule, very swift, 1902, age 28. Or last but not least, Dan, best of all, five-gated saddle horse, Bay, Black Mane, 1910 to 1940, erected by F.H. Page, owner of the animals he loved so well. And they lived such very long lives. Yeah, most of them, if you look at the dates, they lived to be at least 30 years old. So yeah. they were, even though they were working animals, they were well cared for working it, animals. Exactly. As I was going to say, so a hats off to Mr. Page for the care he gave those animals. Yes. Such a sweet story. I was so excited when we got that one. <laughs> no, it was a very, very sweet story. I loved it. Our next story was shared with us by a former U.S. Marine who wanted us to pay tribute to Sergeant Reckless, a horse who was very, very loved by an entire unit of Marines during the Korean War. Reckless was a chestnut mare who was purchased by the U.S. Marine Corps in 1952 and was trained to carry ammunition, supplies, and very particular new weapon to the front lines. That weapon was a six-foot-long recoilless rifle that weighed over a hundred pounds, making it extremely difficult to travel with. Lieutenant Eric Pedersen, commander of the platoon using this rifle, began looking for a better way to transport the weapon when he was presented with a unique opportunity. Lieutenant Pedersen met a boy who was training a young mare as a racehorse to race at the tracks in Seoul. Unfortunately, the boy's sister had stepped on a landmine and was forced to have one of her legs amputated. Her family desperately wanted to get her a prosthetic leg, but couldn't afford one. The boy offered to sell his horse to Lieutenant Pedersen for $250, and that's when Pedersen knew he had a solution to traveling with the oversized rifle. A horse would be more than capable of carrying such a load, and so he paid for the horse with his own money. According to David Hill... Pedersen had a number of men in his unit who knew horses, and together they trained the horse to carry the gun and nine of the heavy 24-pound shells, but also to lie down under fire, avoid barbed wire, and crouch in foxholes, and to run for cover when there was incoming fire. The Marines who cared for her affectionately referred to her as the little lady and treated her as one of their own. They share their food water, and even their sleeping quarters with her. She quickly became a beloved member of the unit, and her bravery and dedication under fire made her a legend within the Marine Corps. They nicknamed their horse Sergeant Reckless, and though she wasn't actually a sergeant, after two years of service, the commander of the 1st Marine Division was so impressed and grateful to the horse that he gave her an official battlefield promotion to the rank of sergeant. Her fellow soldiers took the rank serious enough to threaten others with court-martial for disrespecting her rank. There was a standing order that no soldier was allowed to ride on her, not only out of respect for her rank, but because she was too valuable of an asset to risk being injured. Sergeant Reckless served in many battles during the Korean War. Her role and responsibilities grew beyond just hauling the heavy recoilless rifle. She carried supplies and ammunition to dangerous outposts and carried wounded soldiers from the battlefield to safety. 
1953, she was present at one of the most storied battles of the Korean War, the Battle for Outpost Vegas, that saw over a thousand American soldiers and twice as many Chinese soldiers killed in three days of fighting. In one single day of the battle, Sergeant Reckless made over 50 trips across rice paddies and up steep mountain trails to the front lines and back. At first, she would make the trek with the Marine leading her. But after casualties grew so great that the Marines couldn't spare any extra hands, Reckless made the trip on her own without any Marine, save for the occasional wounded laid across her back. She was wounded twice, hit both over her eye and in her left flank, yet she continued to make the trip back and forth while under fire and without any urging by a human being. Wow. She was Sergeant, a brave horse. <laughs> yes. Sergeant Reckless became famous in the U.S. after an article written about her was published in the Saturday Evening Post and gained public support to be brought back to the United States after the war. She was transported to San Francisco for free and lived at Camp Pendleton, where she was treated as a hero. Sergeant Reckless was awarded numerous medals and citations, including two Purple Hearts and a Presidential Unit Citation, and wore them on her horse blanket. Reckless lived out the rest of her life peacefully at the Camp Pendleton Base in California, where she died in 1968. I love this story. Her funeral was attended by many Marines who paid their respects to the mayor who had served alongside them and been a source of comfort and inspiration during some of their most difficult times. The funeral was a testament to Reckless's significance to the Marines and her lasting legacy as a symbol of courage, bravery, and devotion. In 1996, she was posthumously inducted into the Marine Corps War Memorial as a symbol of all war horses and mules. Her grave, which is located at the National Museum of the Marine Corps in Virginia, is a popular attraction and a testament to her bravery and service during the Korean War. Ah, it's it's sad in a way, but then also very inspiring and heartwarming. Well, what I find, one of the things I find about the story that I really love is, you know, the Marines always are a unit right when they fight together and they leave no man behind nothing like that and obviously sergeant reckless felt the same i mean she proved it in that one battle she didn't leave those men behind if she could help it she went back on her own and think about it some horses shy in battle Mm -hmm. you know all that there's firing going on weapons people dying it's a scary situation and there are horses that are not cut out for it and she was being trained as a racehorse and look what she ended up doing instead right and even though, yeah, even though she wasn't racing on the tracks and possibly bringing that young man fame, she saved probably countless lives and so much heroic. And what she did was probably worth so much more. And, it's and incredible. the article that I read that was shared with us, um, or it was, it wasn't really an article, I guess it was a blog post, um, she it had continued and I didn't put this in the script, but there had been a book written about her. And the only reason I didn't put this in the script is because I forgot to go back and look it up. But a few years ago, sometime in 2015 or 2016, um, there was a woman who wrote a book about her, which now I want to get my hands on this book and read it. Uh, and she was presenting about the book at um, some kind of horse convention thing in Kentucky. And there was a man there who was a former Marine. 
um, and also was very involved in this horse, in these horse that he's still involved. I think he's, he's still alive. Um, he had never heard about reckless until this event. And he was very taken up because he was, it combined the two things he was very passionate about the Marines having served as a Marine and then also horses. And he wanted to know more about her story. So he dug into her and he, uh, him along with the author of this book and some other people raised money, um, at this facility in Kentucky. I remember that part. I don't remember what the name of it was to have another memorial for reckless placed there. Mm. So she's actually got three statues of her in different places. Now, I think there's one at Camp Pendleton. There's the one in Virginia where her body is. Mm -hmm. And then there's this one in Kentucky because she means so much to so many people and what she stands for means so much to so many people. Exactly. Oh my gosh. That is so wonderful. I have to look up the, I'll look up the book and I'll link it in the show notes in case anybody beside you and I want to read it. Um, Because she horses are very smart. I mean, I was fortunate to be able to know horses growing up. I didn't have any of my own personally, but grew up around some horses are incredibly intelligent and they can be incredibly caring and just wonderful creatures. And so, you know, when you get a whole unit of Marines attached to this horse, right. And I mean, like I said, they taught her how to carry this huge weapon, but also how to stay safe when she was on the battlefield and she learned it. Well, and just crouching down in the foxholes and stuff, it was like, oh my goodness. I mean, well, oh, and I'm assuming, wow. and I could be wrong, I was not there during the Civil War, but I'm assuming that's how some of the horses during the Civil War were trained. Oh, I'm sure. Think about it. I mean, for centuries, people fought on horseback. So yeah, there was exactly. knowledge out there for, I just, I get, I never really gave it much thought until I read this blog post. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, you would have to train your horses to be able to handle the loud noises and the everything going on, but also how to do some of these things. Um, yeah. And, and to get themselves down so they won't, wouldn't get shot. Yeah. And there's actually a lot of other stories. Now, these were stories, like I said, shared by our listeners. Um, there's a lot of other stories I know out there about very well-loved animals who had heroic, did heroic deeds, especially during battles and stuff. I know there's a dog too whose name I cannot think of, but I know I've read the story. Yes. I it was army or Marines or something mm-hmm. very similar to Reckless's thing. Like it was a very heroic dog. Um, and there's so many, so there's a lot of these animals that have made these connections with humans, helped save humans. And in turn, the humans have saved them, you know, and, and making sure they're well cared for. And I just love the warm fuzzies that you get from these stories, but also how mm-hmm. you want to cry too. <laughs> yeah. And I just, sometimes I think we don't give animals um, enough credit for what they are capable of doing and being and how they can become so, so much bigger part of our lives than what we think. Oh yeah, definitely. Most definitely. So today's episode reminds us how love and horses are intricately connected Many of us have love for animals in our lives, cats, dogs, birds, reptiles. Our love for animals has the power to heal, bring joy, and make our world a kinder and more compassionate place. So let us continue to nurture this love and pass it on to others. To hear more stories of love, visit our website, theordinaryextraordinarycemetery.com, and check out the featured episode section at the top of the page, 
where you will find links to other love stories we have shared on the podcast. And don't forget to show us some love on social media. Yes, I played with the words. Yes, we are did. on Facebook and Instagram at Ordinary Extraordinary Cemetery and on Twitter at Ord Extra Sim. Thank you very much to Holly and Tim for sharing this week's stories with us. We look forward to sending out more love to you all next week. Until we meet again. <laughs>